So, um, comments, things to share, stuff to talk about from our conversation? I appreciated the comment you made about the three places to rest. (laughs) And that was beautiful. I just know there's so many. (laughs) (laughs) A reminder that there's so many. Just to rest in loving kindness sometimes. Two topics that come to mind off of uh, when you were talking about the uh, uh, first group you met with in Denver and how they just kind of woke up to uh, what you were doing uh, was somewhat surprising. The um, uh, one of the teachings that I had heard was that. Um, Awakening is not an act, but it's a event. It's a, it's a act of grace, if you will. So, and it can come to anybody, at any time, any place. Uh, but the, there is also a role that karma plays in that. So, I was wondering if you could just spend a couple minutes on those two aspects: the nature of awakening and the. So if we just use Deepama as an example, you know, so I don't know her karma, you know, I can't tell you what her karma was, but what I can say is is, is that, you know, she came into this world with a tremendous interest in monks and meditation and religious ceremony and a lot of faith, and that was evident from her childhood activities and her um, close association with monastics and her being allowed to do things that were not allowed for either children or girl children in particular. So she had a like a karmic affinity with, with this stuff when she was born. Yeah, that her family nourished and nurtured. And and so that was like a, a, a she came in with that. And then she had the personal circumstances of her life, which were, you know, quite an enormous amount of personal suffering. Right? Which is also karmic. Yeah. But the, the context of having a, an affinity with meditation and with monastics and with like a sense of a way out and the intensity of the suffering that she had meant that she was able to focus her mind in a way where the level of realization that she had was extremely profound very quickly. So that's both karmic and grace. Yeah, it's the karmic... Uh, propensities of having trained and having an association, having an affinity with meditation, as well as, you know, no one can predict what actually happens and how things unfold. It's the grace of the conditions coming together in that particular way. Yeah. So at every moment, we have these two things operating. We have the karma of the, the, of the actions, the volitional actions from our past ripening in the present. So the present moment is conditioned by the things that we've thought and believed and acted and said and done in the past. That's what the present is made of. But the present is also made up of the possibility of opening to something which is completely unknown. And so, you know, the choice of where we place our attention and opening up to a new possibility is always there. So no matter what kind of patterning that we've come from, there still is a window of being able to make a new choice for the next moment. And that is partly to do with the way we focused our attention, the kind of karma that we have, as well as the experience of grace. So you can see people who are really stuck in something, and then it shifts. You know, so people who have addiction as 
karmic patterning and they come to a place and they said it's finished I'm not doing that anymore well what happens at that moment you know they've got however many years or decades or lifetimes of one particular pattern they get to a spot and then they change course they change direction that's both the karmic propensity to open to a new way as well as the grace of being able to open up and accept that there's a new way and both of them are operating simultaneously so to a certain degree that is, is the alchemy of this event uh, an element of openness and intention or is, uh, to what importance does intention have well in the Buddhist way of looking at things intention is really paramount in terms of, you know, the intention is the thing that determines karma and determines all kinds of stuff. So, you know, with particularly within the Theravada tradition, there's not a whole lot of speaking on grace. It's more about intention. My personal experience is, is that the two are intertwined. But what we need to look after is our intention. So we check out and look after our intention and let grace look after itself. So we put ourselves in the best possible position to be open to receiving grace, but we make sure that our intention is as clear as it can be and as wholesome as it can be. That's our job. And constantly be willing to let go. Let go, let go, let go, let go, let go. You know, and open up into that which is unknown. Um, it seems like one of the tricky things about working with perception is that it seems like it so quickly leads to mental proliferation and, and to be able to, to trace it back to the original perception of trigger getting in a twist or uh, it seems like that's, that can be really challenging seeing what actual perception is. So it is challenging and that's why you know having the first foundation of mindfulness and the second foundation of mindfulness are really helpful as ways of anchoring that. So we don't always catch the perception, but sometimes we can go back to the like, oh, this is yum, or yuck, you know. So most things kind of boil down to yum and yuck. And, you know, we miss yum and yuck, and then it goes into perception, and then this whole huge, huge proliferation festival happens out of yum and yuck. But if we can trace it back to something just as simple as a two-year-old yum-yuck response... We can be aware of yam and yak without kind of flipping out or going into a big, huge, you know, fantasy or a kind of proliferation about what we want to do with yam and what we want to do with yak. But we miss it, it's true, and that's why having simpler places to let our attention rest is so fundamental to be able to train our attention to move from perception back to vedana, to feeling, and then back to body, to sensation. So we have this ability to shift our attention from one thing to the other thing to the other thing as a way of unsticking the places where we get stuck in. Yeah. So if we're stuck in, we don't need to resolve the stuckness. We just shift our attention into something that's easier to be with without being stuck. But like, you know, you work with where you're up to, you know. So, you know, when you're exhausted and you need to sleep, you need to sleep. You don't worry about the perception. You just get the rest that you need. And then when you've had the rest that you need, then you pick up the pieces where you can so if you're really sick and you're really tired a lot because you're really sick, then what you need to do is sleep. And so if your mind is going loop-de-loop-de-loop-de-loop-de, you don't worry about that. You just go to bed. When you wake up, then you pick up what you can when you have the energy and resources to do so. 
So things are always really contextual in terms of what you're dealing with and what's the best way. There isn't ever a kind of, well, this is absolutely the path. The path is contextual, and the context is, what are you up for, and what are you able to manage? I really uh, appreciated the discussion on the, the groundlessness and the, the, the grasping for concrete, the grasping for security. I was told you I was at that retreat, and that was almost the whole theme of the week. They used the river, and the whole time on the shore of the river was the grasping, and the whole theme was about, basically the message was that, especially with the Today's society rather fears heightened. As people get more and more scared, you can either let go more profoundly or you can hold on more desperately. And I think that was the whole theme is that just people are getting more and more frightened. They're holding on to their ideals where more and more desperately. They're hungry for ground under their feet and it just doesn't exist. There's nothing to satisfy. And so the whole theme of the retreat was letting go and learning how to recognize the, the, the grasping behaviors. Right. And also learning how to tolerate the anxiety of not being able to locate yourself with ideals and places that you got your fingers stuck in because in just floating in the river there isn't any solid ground. Exactly. And that's something that's deeply anxiety producing until one realizes how deeply peaceful it is. But you have to go through the fear of the anxiety in order to get to the peace. And it takes a kind of you know, like you have to build up muscles to, to do the ascent at Pikes Peak. Well, you have to build up muscles in order to handle the groundlessness. But it's a different kind of muscles. It's the, ground, it's the muscles of, of being able to tolerate not being able to locate yourself. Sort of managing panic. <laughs> <laughs> so is there a fundamental sense that life is compassionate? in the sense that even in periods of fierce grace that it's, it's proportioned the life itself proportioned to, to the level of acceptance and tolerance no what there is is an understanding that our fundamental nature is compassionate and wise and so, you know, when everything else falls away, that's what we're left with. But it doesn't extrapolate that in terms of, well, how is the world manifesting? It just says that that's what our actual nature is made out of. Now, I also know that any times of really incredible adversity, it can be used in a way where it's an opportunity to allow our hearts open and our, our clarity to sharpen. And, you know, certainly most of us here would know that the times of difficulties you know, have been strengthening. You know, if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. And so, you know, if you've got an aspiration to wake up and you go through stuff that's tough, you know, that toughness is, can be tremendously advantageous for um, developing insight, developing patience, developing compassion, uh, focusing the need for, in, for clear seeing. You know, so with Deepama, you know, her life was just, I mean, the suffering of that is just almost unfathomable. And yet what it did was sharpened her clarity of purpose so that it was razor sharp. She got it. There was nothing in this world that was worth clinging to. And that was the view that she went into meditation with. Nothing in this world worth clinging to. She knew that in the marrow of her bones. Well, wow. 
also her personal experience was a journey through unimaginable suffering, but that journey catalyzed the capacity for profound realization, and what resulted in that was unimaginable love and peace. You know, she's a remarkable person because her physical frame was tiny. I don't know, four foot two or three. I mean, she was pisqueeny. But she was absolutely ginormous when you hung out with her. She just filled up this field. It was like, I don't know what, this huge person. Just huge. And the center point of it, or like the characteristic of it, was this love that was just, just exquisite. It was just so... Amazing! It was a stillness. It was this peacefulness. It was a it was a clear seeing. It was a receiving, allowing, embracing. It's just amazing. So she didn't make statements about the stuff around her. What she did say was, "Is that when you practice, this is the result. You know, this is where all of it can go to if you know how to focus your mind carefully." And with her, you know, the thing that I found so impressive was because she had phenomenal power. Both in terms of psychic abilities as well as in terms of the potency of her insight. But the thing that was really impressive was the love. This is where this goes to. This is the result of practice. Did you know Deepama? Because I I read the book about her. Maybe there's more than one, but that's wonderful. Yeah, I heard about her when I was first introduced to meditation. And from the time I first heard about her, I wanted to meet her. And, you know, it took nine years from the time I first heard about her to be able to get to India and meet her. And when I met her, it was really impactful. You know, because at that point... Well, no, I'd met Tungpulu Saida, and he was... Wow, he was impressive. But, you know, the impact that, that she had on me somehow affected me more. I was more able to connect with her. You know, you could give her hugs and, you know, stuff. You couldn't do that with Tom Pulisaito. He was a monk, and, you know, there were certain kinds of protocol about what was okay and not okay. And I had more time with her. So, yeah, she's very remarkable. Are there any other things to share? Well, if that's the case, why don't we close with the sharing of blessings? <laughs> 